Our Father, every redeemed heart in this room remembers what it was like when we failed to walk close to you. We remember the, uh, the strategy that we had for meeting our own needs and the, um, the efforts that we made to build our own sense of self-esteem and our own worth and our place in the sun. We also remember the disaster. We remember how adversely it affected our marriages and how our kids suffered as, as mama and or daddy decided that they knew better. We remember what kind of mistakes we made when we did not consult your word and, and walked in a path of carnality. And so, oh, my Heavenly Father, how many of us in this room sing with such passion, such meaning, such willingness, such eager desire and surrender. Oh, how we long to walk close to thee. Gladly will we toil and suffer if you'll only let us walk close to thee. Father, we cannot produce that in the flesh. Uh, We pray that your spirit would so steer us that we would not ever be very far from a path that mimics yours. Our Father, we do pray for our nation once again. She continues to wrestle with problems. Uh, September the 11th has faded from many of our memories, and yet, O God, the hearts of America are still so hard, so independent, so unwilling to yield to the King of Kings. So, would you use us, Lord, would you use a small band of people known as Grace Evangelical Church to reach our community? Oh God, it would be our privilege, our joy, to see our community sit up, wake up, and take notice that there is a God of grace who has made provision for sinners in Christ. Now, Father, accept our gifts, small or large. Might they flow out of hearts that are eager to walk close to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Grab your Bibles, if you will, and let's turn back to the book of Judges for the last time. This will be our final installment in our study of the book of Judges. And uh, though I'm covering chapters 19, 20, and 21, because they really comprise one story, I'm only going to read to you, uh, in its entirety, chapter 19. So you follow as I read, beginning at... Judges chapter 19 at verse 1. Follow as I read. And it came to pass in those days, when there was no king in Israel, that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote mountains of Ephraim. He took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. But his concubine played the harlot against him and went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there four whole months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back, having his servant and a couple of donkeys with him. So she brought, so she brought him into her father's house. And when the father of the young woman saw him, he was glad to meet him. 
Now, his father-in-law, the young woman's father, detained him, and he stayed with him three days. So they ate and drank and lodged there. Then it came to pass on the fourth day that they arose early in the morning, and he stood to depart. But the young woman's father said to his son-in-law, Refresh your heart with a morsel of bread, and afterward go your way. So they sat down, and the two of them ate and drank together. Then the young woman woman's father said to the man, Please be content to stay all night, and let your heart be merry. And when the man stood to depart, his father-in-law urged him, so he lodged there again. Then he arose early in the morning on the fifth day to depart, but the young woman's father said, Please refresh your heart. So they delayed, delayed until afternoon, and both of them ate. And when the man stood to depart, he and his concubine and his servant, his father-in-law, the young woman's father, said to him, Look, the day is now drawing toward evening. Please spend the night. See, the day is coming to an end. Lodge here, that your heart may be merry. Tomorrow, go on your way early so that you may get home. However, the man was not willing to spend that night, so he rose and departed and came opposite Jebus, that is, Jerusalem. With him were the two saddle donkeys. His concubine was also with him. They were near Jebus, and the day was far spent, and the servant said to his master, Come, please, let us turn aside into the city of the Jebusites and lodge in it. But his master said to him, We will not turn aside here into a city of foreigners who are not the children of Israel. We will go on to Gibeah. So he said to his servant, Come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night in Gibeah or in Ramah. And they passed by and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. They turned aside there to go into lodging Gibeah, and when he went in, he sat down in the open square of the city, for no one would take them into his house to spend the night. Just then, an old man came in from his work in the field at, at evening, who was also from the mountains of Ephraim. He was staying in Gibeah, whereas the men of the place were Benjamites. And when he raised his eyes, he saw the traveler in the open square of the city, and the old man said, Where are you going, and where do you come from? So he said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem in Judah toward the remote mountains of Ephraim. I am from there. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and now I am going to the house of the Lord. But there is no one who will take me into his house, although we have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for myself, for your female servant, and for the young man who is with your servant. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be with you. However, let all your needs be my responsibility. Only do not spend the night in the open square. So he brought him into his house and gave fodder to the donkeys, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. As they were enjoying themselves, suddenly certain men of the city, perverted men, surrounded the house and beat on the door. They spoke to the master of the house, the old man, saying, Bring out the man who came to your house, that we may know him carnally. But the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brethren, I beg you, do not act so wickedly. Seeing this man has come into my house, do not commit this outrage. <coughs> Look, here is my virgin daughter and the man's concubine. Let me bring them out now, humble them, and do with them as you please. But to this man, do not do such a vile thing. But the men would not heed him, so the man took his concubine and brought her out to them, and they knew her and abused her all night until morning. And when the day began to break, they let her go. Then the woman came as the day was dawning and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was till it was light. When her master arose in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go his way, there was his concubine fallen at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, Get up and let us be going. But there was no answer. So the man lifted her onto the donkey, and the man got up and went to his place. When he entered his house, he took a knife, 
laid hold of his concubine and divided her into twelve pieces, limb by limb, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And so it was that all who saw it said, No such deed has been done or seen from the day that the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, confer, and speak up. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Gang, last week we introduced this whole last five chapters of the book of Judges, and I told you it was a theme that uh, drew them together or bound them together. It was a theme that there was no king in Israel, and thus everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And you see that our chapter this morning started with that same theme. In verse 1, there was no king in Israel, and uh, as a result, when there's no king, everyone inevitably will do what is right in their own eyes. The last three chapters of Judges, 19, 20, and 21, are um, definitely not for the faint-hearted, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, They record a story of moral depravity that is unparalleled in all of Scripture. If you thought last week was bad, well, let me remind you that last week's story included theft and murder. This week's grisly story includes adultery, rape, murder, homosexuality, mutilation, kidnapping, and if that weren't enough, civil war. Now, as I did last week, I told you, imagine yourself to be in the Orpheum, and these, uh, this play is unfolding in, for, in front of you, and let me introduce to you once again the cast, the cast of Act Two of a play that I entitled Chaos. First of all, the first player is another Levite. Now, this is not the Levite from last week. This is a, a man who is from the remote mountains of Ephraim. But you're going to find out that he's a coward. He's a liar. Uh, both recorded for you in chapter 20, verse 5. And when it comes to uh, hard-heartedness, cruelty, he wrote the book. His wife or concubine, the difference in a wife and a concubine, she was often treated like a wife but had less legal status than a wife and was often a slave. But the, the concubine is the one who gets raped and murdered and then dismembered. I read to you from verse 25, 28, and 29 of chapter 19. But you mustn't forget that this whole event begins with her commitment to harlotry in verse 2 of chapter 19. And then you have the citizens of Gibeah, a city in the town of uh, Benjamin. Uh, And it's a city full, that is, Gibeah is a city full of homosexuals, we're told in verse 22 of chapter 19. But ultimately, they are foiled in their homosexual lusts. And they end up having to settle for second best. Second best being rape and murder uh, in verse 25 of chapter 19. And then the other player in this act is the 11 tribes of Israel, the other 11 besides Benjamin. And they seek to rectify this, this horrible, unheard of deed. And they end up getting chastised themselves, which is recorded in chapter 20 for you. Here we go, gang. Uh, Last week we had four villains and no good guys. Well, let me add to that list four other villains and no good guys. That's a total of eight. Eight bad guys, eight villains, no good guys. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the result. When any nation or city or individual decides that He will be his own king. 
then you can expect a crowd full of bad guys with no good guys. It's the depravity of an entire nation that is splattered before your very eyes. It's a new Sodom. You remember Sodom of Sodom and Gomorrah fame, don't you? Well, this has happened before. A city full of homosexuals demanding that they can have uh, sex with a member of their same gender. And you may recall what God's response to that situation was in Sodom and Gomorrah. It was utter and total destruction. Um, All brought on because there's no king in Israel. And everybody does what is right in his own eyes. Scene 1 begins in verse 1 of chapter 19 with a Levite whose concubine has decided that she doesn't like living in remote mountains of Ephraim and she is going to give herself over to uh, some harlotry. Uh, so she bolts from her home uh, or marriage with, uh, with uh, or relationship with the Levite and head back, heads back to her father's house in the big city of Bethlehem. Who, by the way, receives her very gladly and openly, this prostitute harlot daughter of his, he welcomes home. Uh, The Levite is somewhat miffed that she has left, and so he decides to chase after her. After four months, he does chase after her. He finds her in her father's home in Bethlehem and tries to sweet-talk her into coming back home with him. She's not so sure and kind of resists, but in the midst of all this, the father-in-law and um, the Levite, oh, they hit it off marvelously. They become just uh, uh, as tight as uh, two ticks. But ultimately, the woman agrees to return to uh, the Levite home uh, in the remote mountains of Ephraim. So after a few brief delays, having fun eating all night uh, or drinking or whatever they're doing, the Levite and his harlot concubine set out for home uh, sometime in the middle of the day. But because they got a late start, uh, they end up um, being stuck in between the two locations and hoping to find uh, a little hospitality from the citizens of Gibeah. Uh, They don't want to stay in Jebus because the Jebusites live there and they're not children of Israel. So let's go find a city where the people of God, uh, you know, live. So let's uh, head on, let's push it a little further and make it to Gibeah. So uh, not a lot of welcome mats thrown out for this company. But finally, an old man, we're told in verse 16, an old man coming in from the field spots them and offers them a bit of southern hospitality. And he opens his home to them and their donkeys and the servant. Later that night, after supper, um, a group of men, citizens from the city of Gibeah, surround the house and begin to bang on the door. Their simple request is, send out the man that you've got inside. We want to know him carnally. Now, if you need to explain that to your children later, you go right ahead. But you, I hope, understand what's going on. Uh, These citizens of Gibeah are uh, desirous of a homosexual relationship with the Levite. The host of the home, the old man, is utterly appalled and embarrassed and tries to talk uh, his fellow citizens out of such goings-on. And in response, offers his, here's his solution. He offers his daughter and the concubine as a substitute. Don't do this horrible thing. Why don't you instead do 
this horrible thing. <laughs> That's the old man's solution. But the fine, upstanding citizens of Gibeah are not easily dissuaded. And so the Levite, forced at one point, uh, kind of pushes his concubine out the door, slams the door, bolts it, and locks it. And um, she becomes, that is, the Levite's concubine becomes the entertainment for a group of citizens whose first choice is homosexuality. Now, Jimmy, where are you getting all this? Have you been reading some smutty little novel? No, ladies and gentlemen, it's right here recorded for you in God's Word. And while the Levite and the host are getting a good night's sleep, the woman is being raped and abused to the point that she is killed. The next morning, the kind and thoughtful Levite finds his concubine sprawled out on the doorstep and goes to her very tenderly and very lovingly and delicately and says, Get up! Let's get going! That's recorded for you in verse 28. <clears throat> and at that point, he discovers that his concubine is dead. So he throws her dead body onto a, a donkey and heads back to the remote mountains of Ephraim. Scene 2 arrives now at verse 29, where while as soon as he is home, uh, the Levite hatches this fiendish idea to how to, as to how to extract revenge on the citizens of Gibeah. So here's what he does. He chops this woman's dead body up into 12 pieces and finds himself a uh, Federal Express drop point and sends a chunk of his wife, of his dead wife, if she wasn't dead then, she's certainly dead now, sends a chunk of her to every tribe in Israel. And his intention was, of course, to raise support for some kind of national movement to punish the citizens of, of Gibeah. And he succeeds. Civil war breaks out, but one that doesn't go as smoothly as hoped. First of all, the rest of the tribe of Benjamin sides with the citizens of Gibeah. That means not only the city of Gibeah, but the whole tribe of Benjamin is now sided with their homosexual brethren. And secondly, we're told, and you can read this in chapter 20, verses 18 through 25, that an army of 400,000 uh, is repelled by an army of 26,000 and 40,000 lives are lost of the larger army. That's, of course, that happens over two uh, brief skirmishes. But finally, in verses 26 through 35 of chapter 20, you'll discover that superior numbers finally went out over the tribe of Benjamin, and she, that is, Benjamin is subdued and loses 25,000 fighting men. But 600 of the tribe of Benjamin escape, which, of course, brings us to scene three as recorded for you in the entirety of chapter 21. It's certain, it, it suddenly hits Israel that one whole tribe has been wiped out by the Civil War, uh, and sadness overtakes them. Whoever heard of the 11 tribes of Israel? Uh, they want a, uh, the full complement of the 12 tribes, and now they don't know what to do. They just wiped out an entire tribe, but then she discovers, the other 11 tribes discovers, that there are 600 who are hiding. So they cook up a scheme as to how these 600 might be gotten wives. 
And it's a little interesting story about how they kidnapped 600 women to be the wives of these 600 remaining Benjamites. And uh, so these 600 couples are encouraged to sail off into the sunset and make babies and uh, repopulate the tribe of Benjamin, which apparently they do because in the coming years you will find that the first king of Israel, whose name is Saul, comes from Gibeah. Have you had enough? I know what you mean. This is kind of um, disconcerting to say the least, but I, I think you would agree that uh, it's not much unlike what you can read over the course of a year in, in the commercial appeal. That always happens when there's no king in Israel. I want to close with some lessons for us, and I have to do that quickly. But there are about six things here that I hope that you can use as applicable to your soul. Number one, I hope you notice that the problem here is not the sins. The problem here is sin. Gang, you do understand, don't you, that we sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. Jesus makes that very clear in Mark chapter 7 when he talks about what goes in a man doesn't defile him, but what comes out of a man defiles him. It's the heart that's the problem, and out of the heart flows adultery and wickednesses and all these things. So if that's the problem, how is that problem ever going to be fixed? Moral reform? A new set of very rigid social laws? A tougher government stance? New legislation? Uh, uh, what's going to fix that? Well, ladies and gentlemen, no amount of legislation is going to fix this. The only thing that will fix this is the new birth. Regeneration. I want you to know that if you find yourself out of control in terms of your love of and commitment, of, commitment to sin, cheating, stealing, lying, whatever, New Year's resolutions aren't going to help you. Oh, they might help you for eight days. But the only thing that will change you is the work of the Holy Spirit, which we call the new birth. Secondly, one of the things that really almost humored me is, is the way the Levite is so outraged at somebody else's sin. He never once mentions the fact that he just shoved his wife out the front door. Um, it's a lesson to be learned, guys, that we can remain smug we can remain most smug when we've concentrated on somebody else's sin. That's what the Levite does. Oh, how horrible are those citizens of Gibeah. And we don't ever, ever have to examine our own heart as long as we can find somebody that is more sinful than we. Gang, um, moral superiority... is a sign of a legalist, a Pharisee. Defining yourself as morally superior to a city full of homosexuals 
is only because you have not paused long enough to see the ravages of sin in your own heart. Moral superiority is the earmark of a Pharisee. Thirdly, this is something I had to work in here because it was so intriguing to me. In chapter 20, verses 18 through 28, you will find that the army of the 11 tribes, all 400,000 of them, go to God and say, should we attack them? And God says, yes, go ahead and attack them and Judah should lead. And um, they have the will of God. They know the will of God. They're following the will of God. And you know what they meet up with? Defeat. It happens twice. They go back and say, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> wait a minute, we didn't understand. We thought you told us to go this way. Yeah, that's right, I told you to go that way. And wait a minute, isn't that supposed to include victory? Two times God leads them and leads them into defeat. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know why our God does that. I just know that He does. I don't know why people who thought, who say, we prayed about our, our transfer. Oh, we sought God's will when we started that business. Oh, I thought I knew the mind of God when I married Him. I don't know why God does it. I got to guess. I just know that He does. I know that at times we are walking right where God tells us to walk, and the end result is nothing but defeat. And one of the reasons I think he does that is because we're all so much more teachable when we're broken. And so the mind of God is to lead his people into occasions of utter defeat. Fourthly, <clears throat> ladies and gentlemen, whenever you find the absence of clarity over law, nationally, individually, then you can expect that whoever has the most force will rule. Arbitrary rule will then give way to anarchy. And the land becomes ungovernable except through terror and totalitarianism. My friend, if you want to live in a peaceful and quiet culture, then may I recommend that you invest heavily in the gospel. You know, um, there is a statement that's made by the, uh, the prophet Amos, where Amos says that there's a day coming that I will, I will send a famine on the land. It's in Amos chapter 8, verse 11. He says, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will send a famine on the land, but not a famine of bread nor a thirst of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. A famine where the mind of God is being declared. You better invest heavily in the gospel. You better invest heavily in those institutions where somebody will stand up and say, I know what the newspapers say. I know what you saw at the movie. But in the face of it all, thus saith the Lord. There's coming a day when there's going to be a famine. And the famine will be where the word of the Lord is not spoken. And ladies and gentlemen, 
you won't want to be living in that culture. Fifthly, chapter 21 of Judges is a declaration of the tenacity of God's grace. Well, how is that, Jimmy? Well, consider, consider Sodom and Gomorrah, ladies and gentlemen. God's response to Sodom and Gomorrah was a complete destruction. But here, when he deals with his people, he refuses to let go of his people. He refuses not to love them. Chastise them, ch- chastise them oh, you bet. But let them go? Never. And then finally, if you will flip over to the end of the book, I told you last week that these last five chapters were bracketed with these words. Here they are. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The book ends and leaves us crying out for a deliverer. The book is over. And it leaves us at the place where we're longing for Him to send a deliverer from all this chaos. This plaintive cry that we get in chapter 21, verse 25. Such a vacuum. Such chaos all around. Oh, who will ever deliver us from the body of this death? Ehud of chapter 3 couldn't do it. Othniel couldn't do it. Shamgar, Deborah, Barak, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson. Nobody. Nobody could deliver us. Oh. Oh, when will you ever send a deliverer? There's no deliverer, ladies and gentlemen. Good works and moralism and religious formalism and baptism and humanism and success and education, none of it will deliver us. No deliverer is to be found anywhere. Except in shed blood and a broken body. Our Father, we do thank you that you have not left us without a deliverer. That you have brought to us the one who can ultimately deliver us from the chaos of our own hearts. And we celebrate his life and death today. But our focus today is on his death. That place where the love of God is portrayed like no place else. So, Father, look into the hearts of your people and grant health as we remember that you have provided the Deliverer. His name is Jesus Christ. Amen.